You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. What makes Ayn Rand's philosophy distinctive? By Ankar Gatte. Hi, this is uh, Ankar Gatte. Thanks for joining us today. Um, welcome to This is Philosophy for Living on Earth, coming to you live from the Ayn Rand Institute. So this is a weekly uh, webinar series that we're doing where we're exploring life's big questions and the answers uh, to those questions that are offered um, by Ayn Rand's ideas, Ayn Rand's philosophy. I'm Ankar Gatte, I'm the host this week, and our big question for today is a bit different. So in past webinars, we've been talking about various aspects of Rand's ideas and how they impact your life. Um, today, we're gonna take a bit more of an overview. In a, in a sense, we're gonna step back and we're gonna talk a little bit about Ayn Rand's philosophy as such. What's it all about and what makes it so distinctive and controversial. That's what we're gonna talk about. Uh, I'm gonna go for about 20 minutes and then we'll have plenty of time for questions and discussions. And during the questions discussion um, period, uh, my colleague, Aaron Smith will be joining me both to help moderate the discussion, but also to participate in it. But let's get started talking about this question about what makes Rand's philosophy distinctive. Um, one of the ways she herself put it is that she's challenging. So her ideas and her philosophy is challenging 2000 plus years of received wisdom. So she's challenging all kinds of ideas that people accept or have accepted as true. And when I first encountered Ayn Rand's philosophy and started reading her works, what impressed me, I think more than anything, is that she said all kinds of things that I had never heard before. Um, and as I explored more, read more, it taught me to look at the world in a very different way because what she's offering in the end, what a philosophy is, what a set of ideas that make up a philosophy, it's a worldview. And so what it should be teaching you to do is to look at the world in a different way and it should teach you to value and go after all kinds of things uh, that maybe you don't value or don't value highly enough. I know, again, when I encountered Ayn Rand's philosophy, one of its major impacts on me was that it um, really reshaped many of my values and the things that I valued in life and wanted out of life. Now, this is a vast subject to talk about a whole philosophy in 20 minutes. So I'm going to take a certain angle on it. And I think from this perspective that she says all kinds of things that have never been said before. One of the ways you can look at Ayn Rand, her ideas, her philosophy, is that it um, to say it's challenging existing ideas. In particular, it's challenging what you can call false alternatives or false dichotomies that we're told that you either have to choose A or B, and those are your two options. Those are your two alternatives. What objectivism is about, what Ayn Rand's ideas 
uh, are about is often pointing you there's another and better option. Um, and so objectivism is present to say it's presenting a new worldview. It's presenting new alternatives, new options to consider, which she's arguing is a better and truer option. And in thinking about objectivism and reading Ayn Rand, that's exactly what you should be thinking about. What is this new idea or alternative or option that she's offering? And is it better? Um, is it closer to the truth or is it true? Um, I certainly have come to think that the philosophy as a set of principles is true. But what I want to stress here is just that it opens up new ways of looking at the world, new alternatives, new options to consider. And um, in, in looking at objectivism and, and Ayn Rand's philosophy from this angle or from this perspective, I'm going to take a, um, there are different alternatives, but they're related alternatives that I think are false alternatives that were routinely offered. And they all center around the issue of the relation, um, you can put it, of mind to body, of soul to body. These are two ways Ayn Rand herself puts it in her writings when she's discussing some of these issues. And let me take, to get us started, um, one common alternative that I encounter often, and I'm sure you've heard before, so that you have a choice in life between you can adopt and side with some kind of religion, and I put up here on the screen uh, some of the wor dominant world religions. You can either be religious or you're going to be a communist. Now, Ayn Rand was an atheist. I'm an atheist, and this is, you routinely get this objection that, well, if you're an atheist, you must be a communist. Again, why do you get that? Because there's only two alternatives. Either you adopt some kind of religious approach, or you have to side with the communist. Now, Rand completely rejects this. And what I want to stress here is part of the reason she rejects it. She actually thinks of religion and communism as similar, as they're really two variants on the same fundamental theme, both religions and communism as practiced in Russia or in China, if you think of Stalin or Mao, both were about faith in a supreme authority, which you were to obey and all the subjects um, in, in Russia or China were to obey without question. And Rand thinks that you reach true adulthood when you think of and when you work to have philosophy replace religion. So she's an atheist, but she's not about knocking down religion. She's about replacing it with something better. She thinks you do need a worldview. You do need ideals. You need to think carefully about good and evil and how you're going to act in the world. So you want to try to make sense of yourself, your place in the world, how you should think and act. But you should be doing that not by faith, obedience, looking for authorities, but rather carefully thinking about it and reasoning about it. So she thinks of philosophy as what, if you, if you think sort of of mankind's development, of when mankind gets out of its adolescence and into adulthood, it develops philosophy. 
Um, so she, th this is a quote from her. It's the only quote I'm going to put up, but I think this really captures her whole approach to philosophy. She says, philosophy is the goal towards which religion was only a helplessly blind groping. The grandeur, the reverence, the exalted purity, the austere dedication to the pursuit of truth, which are commonly associated with religion, should properly belong to the field of philosophy. And her whole approach to philosophy is taking this really seriously, that it's about the pursuit of truth, it's about the pursuit of what's good, and of carefully thinking about these and formulating rational views about um, what a proper worldview is. And this that you, you're offered that there's an alternative of you either side are on the side of religion or you're on the side of communism. That really at a kind of popular level is an example of, uh, of a kind of false alternative of these choices that both are not good alternatives that run through um, people's thinking about life. So related to the issue of religion communism, you're told that you have a choice between, you can be a spiritual person and that means siding in some sense with the supernatural, orienting your life uh, and, and, and mind towards another dimension. It doesn't have to be an organized religion like Catholicism or, uh, <clears throat> or Islam, but it's nevertheless, it's you're siding with, if you're siding with the spiritual, you're siding with the supernatural, that's one alternative. Or your other alternative is materialism, that you don't think there's any such thing as a soul, um, <clears throat> any such thing as the spiritual in life, all that there is is matter in motion. It's you, you live in a soulless, lifeless, materialistic world. Everything is determined. Um, this is a, again, this is a common alternative in the sense that it's presented as you have to choose one or the other. And Rand rejects both of these. This is part of what it means that she's developing a new world view. She thinks this idea that the spiritual belongs with the supernatural. And if you're going to toss out the supernatural, you toss out the, sp the spiritual, and all you're left with is a soulless, lifeless world. She rejects that completely. She thinks that we as human beings have both mind and body, spirit and matter, uh, matter. soul. Uh, she will put it off in mind and body. Sometimes she'll put it soul and body. These are real, they're natural, they're part of the natural world. So the whole idea of thinking of mind or soul, your principles, convictions, values, what will lie on the so-called spiritual side of life, of putting those as belonging in another dimension, she rejects that. She thinks that uh, properly understood you have a mind, you have a soul, which she thinks of as they're the basic ideas and values that you acquire, that you form. <clears throat> so she thinks not only that you have a soul, or <clears throat> which is your basic ideas and values that guide you through life, you form these. So she thinks, she'll put it often, we're beings of self-made soul. We shape and determine our own souls. 
And again, this is um, contrary to what we're told are the real alternatives. So here's another kind of alternative that we're given, which again, she thinks of as a false alternative. If you think we're capable of shaping our soul, that we have that kind of fundamental control of who we are and who we're going to become, that today is put on the side of you believe in miracles. Free will, people think of as it's something, it's a gift from God. God injects a miracle into a human being. And a miracle here means it's a violation of cause and effect. So I put up an image of the parting of the seas, that the miracle of parting the Red Sea. It's a miracle because causally, if you, if you accept cause and effect, it cannot happen. And that is how free will is thought of. So if you're going to say that you have a soul that you shape and that you make and that you, in a fundamental sense, determine who you are and who you will become in life by your choices, that today is put on the side of, well, you have to accept the supernatural, the religious, the mystical, and reject cause and effect. If you're going to be scientific and accept cause and effect, that's to be materialistic. That's to say you're determined by factors outside of your control. It will typically put it's some combination of nature or nurture. And this is, these are your alternatives, either to accept free will and side with the supernaturalists um, and the religious, or to reject it, to be scientific, and therefore to toss out any conception of a soul, of the spiritual, of that you have fundamental control and choices over your life. Um, and I mean, today the nature nurture view is rampant and it's what gives rise to, for instance, so-called identity politics, that you're a product of the environment um, you're brought up in and the, what you've inherited from your parents, from your wider uh, family members. It's some combination, ethnicity is this idea. You're a product of your environment uh, so nature and how you've been nurtured. You don't have fundamental control. And so someone brought up in a different uh, environment with different uh, um, uh, parents and so on, they just inhabit a different world because they have a different worldview. And that's each person is determined by this kind of collective membership. So this view is rampant today. She rejects this as, again, this is a false alternative. She thinks both views are wrong. What you find in Ayn Rand's philosophy is a view of free will and of choice that is wholly natural. So it doesn't have any, um, make any reference to the supernatural. See, she thinks your mind uh, and a human mind has a power of choice. It has a fundamental power to dictate its course of action. It has the power of choice, which is a causal power. It's, it obeys cause and effect. You're the cause and what you choose is the effect. It's not dictated by antecedent factors, but nor should it be placed in the realm of the supernatural or the mystical. So she, in her philosophy, she has a whole account of, um, of thinking of free will as naturalistic and as not a violation of cause and effect. So again, you, you have a new view that is rejecting what we are told, or you have to pick this alternative or that alternative.
And related to this, um, we're told that in terms of the, your fundamental direction in life, it's either will be set in some kind of religious, faith-based, mystical way. This sets your goal in life. Or if you reject that and you say you're going to side only with reason, reason is put that it's only instrumental. You have some goal and you could have any goal. And reason is just the means. It tells you how to get to this goal. Now, if I put it like this, it's probably this alternative doesn't sound that familiar. But here's a popular way that it's put. If God is dead, everything is permitted. And what does that mean? If God, that is some kind of religion, isn't telling you what values to adopt, what goals to pursue, what ends are the proper ends in life, if a religion doesn't tell you this in a faith-based authoritarian way, then everything is permitted. Any goal, any value, any end you're pursuing is as good as any, or as bad, as any other end. Um, put in philosophical terms, one of the, the classic um, expressions of this view is from David Hume. Uh, and he puts it, and look how starkly he puts it. It is not contrary to reason, Hume writes, to prefer the destruction of the whole world to the scratching of my finger. It is not contrary to reason for me to choose my total ruin to prevent the least uneasiness of an Indian or person wholly unknown to me. It is as little contrary to reason to prefer even my own acknowledged lesser good to my greater. And I have a more ardent affection for the former. That's what, that's what, than for the latter. <clears throat> Close quote. So this view, and it, as I say, the popular expression of this is, if God is dead, therefore everything is permitted. This is the view of if you're choosing between faith and reason. If you choose reason, you're abandoning all goal setting, all values, all ends. And again, Ayn Rand has a very different view of this. She thinks that reason and her whole account of reason across her writings and her works is reason determines the proper ends and means, the proper goals and how to reach them. It determines both values and virtues. So you have a very different view of reason that emerges in Ayn Rand's philosophy than the standard view that it, all it can do is someone gives you some goals or ends which are as good as any other goals or ends and reason can navigate how to reach that she thinks reason is a much much more powerful faculty that sets if you use it properly sets both your goals and the means to obtaining them so again values and virtues <clears throat> and now thinking particularly about the issue of values we're offered in life um, and Rand discusses this both in her fiction works and her nonfiction, so both in The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, and in many of her nonfiction works like The Virtue of Selfishness, were offered two alternatives as the kind of how you can orient your life. It can be altruistic self-sacrifice, and I put up here someone uh, nailing themselves to the cross, <clears throat> so to bear a cross for the sake of others, or if you don't do that, if you don't engage in self-sacrifice of giving up things for the sake of other people, 
then the only alternative is to trample over other people, to exploit them, to walk all over them. And I have an image here, uh, someone walking over someone else. And again, that this is a false alternative is means that these, it's said that these are your only two choices in life. And so whenever someone is not engaged in altruistic self-sacrifice, the assumption and the argument is, well, then they must be engaged in the exploitation of other people. So if a drug company or a bank or a CEO is functioning, and they're obviously not engaged in self-sacrifice when they're running the company and making profits and building their business, it's not altruistic self-sacrifice. Therefore, it has to be that they're exploiting other people. And whether or not they can point to actual exploitation or not, the argument is that's what it has to be since it's not altruistic self-sacrifice. And what Rand argues is, again, this is a false alternative in life. You should think of yourself as an end in yourself. You should be on the quest and the pursuit for hap of happiness. And it's a happiness that is radically individual, achieved by the individual, and that does not require sacrifice, whether sacrifice of yourself to other people or of other people to yourself. And so it's neither that you allow yourself to be exploited by other people, that's what self-sacrifice in the end amounts to, or do you exploit other people? So again, here in terms of thinking of the fundamentals in morality, it's there's we're presented with a false alternative. There's another and better route or option. And that is what objectivism is about, um, really identifying and explaining that other option. And you could boil it down then to these, I said these alternatives, these false alternatives that I've been putting up um, are, they're different, but they're related. And they kind of coalesce and come together in a view of what is possible in life. And we're often told that you can be an impractical idealist or a hard-headed realist. So you can have values, ideals, you can care and really care about what is good and what is evil, but it's hopeless. At least it's hopeless in this world, maybe in the next world or in another dimension, you can reach and realize and achieve the good but not in this world. Um, so it's again, so maybe it's in the side of the supernatural, maybe it's that God will reward you in the next life, but it's on that axis. It's the spiritual, the idealistic, and therefore you um, cannot function or reach goals in the material world. And if that's what you want to do, you need to be a hard-headed realist. And the way that's cashed out is you have to dispense with ideals with morality, with thinking and caring about what's good and what's evil, you need to be practical. And the way to be practical is dis to dispense with convictions, principles, ideals, moral judgment. And what you get with Ayn Rand, and this is the last point I'll make, what you get with Ayn Rand is a conception and a new conception of morality and of moral heroes in life, what she offers, and she offers it in the Fountainhead, but it's especially um, uh, 
apparent in Atlas Shrugged and dramatized in a variety of ways. She offers the perspective and the portrayal of a practical idealist, of someone who has principles, convictions, values, ideals, but they're principles, convictions, values, ideals that can and should be achieved and realized in this world. So they don't pull you to some separate and supposed supernatural dimension. There are ideals that are to be practiced in this world. And you get a conception then of moral heroes. In Atlas Shrugged, you get them uh, obviously in fictional form, it's a novel, but you get a new conception of moral heroes that if you translated them into the people across history, what you get as who you should think of as heroes and but I want to stress as moral heroes. These, are, if you're concerned with good and evil and with ideals, these are the people when they're at their best, you should be trying to emulate. And the heroes that you get in, uh, in Rand's writings are people like Aristotle, Galileo, Newton, Pasteur, Edison. And if we fast forward a little bit to, to, to the present, people like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, people who are um, rational, who think, who push the frontiers of knowledge, as an Aristotle, a Galileo, a Newton did, and who make and produce new values that enrich their lives and the lives of anyone who interacts and trades with them, an Edison, a Gates, a Jobs, a Bezos. That is what they do. And never before, I think, have these kind of people been thought of as moral heroes. And this is what um, is objectivism is really arguing that this is you should remake and refashion your whole conception of a moral hero. And in order to do that, you have to think about and confront all kinds of false alternatives that you're offered in the culture. And, Ayn Rand's ideas, her philosophy, is about doing that rethinking and coming up with new and better alternatives. Um, so just to take three takeaways here in thinking about objectivism, Ayn Rand's philosophy, how to approach it. It's an atheistic philosophy, but you should think of it as it's replacing religion with something better. It's offering a rational worldview a rational philosophy. So she has sympathy with the goals of religion in trying to offer a worldview. She rejects completely the way in which it formulates a worldview, which is faith-based, authoritarian, irrational rather than rational. And what objectivism in, in developing a rational philosophy and something better than religion, it really pushes you to question alternatives. And many of the false alternatives that were offered have their roots in religion. And if we're to replace religion with something better, you have to really think about and question those false alternatives. I put up some that uh, Rand challenges and offers a very different um, option than what are considered the only alternatives that you have to choose amongst. And objectivism is a new worldview. And I wanna stress it's new. 
you need to read Ayn Rand. You need to think about what she's saying and what she's arguing. And don't try to pigeonhole her views too quickly because she's developing new ideas, new views. And this happens all the time that people, because it's a false alternative, so that you think if one is out, the other must be what is going on. So Rand rejects socialism, therefore she must be a fascist. I, use, I get that kind of argument all the time. It's false. She rejects both socialism and fascism. Indeed, she thinks of them as they're very similar. She's for, she's for laissez-faire capitalism, for individual rights, which she thinks of as a radically new system of government that the founding fathers created. Or Ayn Rand rejects altruist self-sacrifice, as I talked about. Therefore, she must advocate exploiting others. Again, that relies on a false alternative. Um, she rejects the supernatural. Therefore, she must be a materialist. That, again, is a false alternative. She's rejecting both. Or take it from the other direction. She champions free will. Therefore, she must reject cause and effect and science. Again, she thinks of that as a false alternative. She champions free will and she champions cause and effect and science. So to pigeonhole is to use your existing categories to try to say, okay, this is what she must be saying. But she's challenging all those categories. So you have to be on the premise of, okay, she's developing a new perspective and a new alternative. Let me not try to pigeonhole it so quickly, but let me try to understand what is this new idea alternative and why does she think it's new? Why is she rejecting the ideas that everybody else seems to hold and say you have to choose amongst? So if you want to really um, delve into objectivism, I think that's the mindset that you should have um, in exploring Ayn Rand's philosophy. Okay, let me stop there. Thanks for uh, listening and thanks for joining us today. So we'll go to the uh, Q&A and discussion in a moment. As I said, Aaron uh, Smith, my colleague at uh, the Ayn Rand Institute, is going to join me for that. Um, but there's a couple of things, kind of housekeeping things to do before that. So one, let me uh, remind you that you can post uh, questions in the Q&A module in Zoom. I think Aaron's also monitoring Facebook for those who are joining us there. Um, next week, there'll be, again, a webinar. It will be uh, Dr. Harry Binswanger, and it will be about independence. What does it mean to be truly independent? You can sign up for our webinars if you go to uh, the webinar page on our website, or here's a, a URL that will take you directly there. Okay, so that's what's coming up next week. And a reminder as always that if you have a big question, a topic that you think uh, you'd like to see addressed in a future webinar, you can uh, let us know at webinars at einran.org. Um, and we're, we, we definitely read everything that comes in there and we're seriously interested in what people are hoping will address. So please, if you have some ideas, submit them there. And then, uh, there's one last thing, which is um, we do polling at the end of these. We're trying to uh, reach new audiences, people relatively unfamiliar with Ayn Rand. So we're, we uh, have a poll at the end, which I can make, uh, which I can launch now. Just asking you, tell us what your basic familiarity is with uh, Ayn Rand, her ideas, her writings. So let me launch that. And with that, I think all the um, housekeeping is done. So let me 
turn off my screen share, and I think Aaron is uh, ready to join. Uh, hi, Ankar. Hi, Aaron. Hi, everyone. Okay, let's start this out. Um, <clears throat> what did we get? A question from Emily. Uh, what did what advice would you give someone who sees the value in Ayn Rand's ideas but has difficulty applying it to their lives? And she also asks, and why do you think it's hard to apply them? Uh, apply these ideas to your life? Um, let's take the second part. Why is it hard to apply them? I think it's hard to understand them first. And, the, and to, so to really understand them. And if you don't really understand them, that you can't apply them. And it relates really to the whole theme of what I was stressing in this little presentation, which is that she's developing new fundamental alternatives in life. And to, to see that, okay, this is a new view. It's a new view about the relation of soul and body, or it's a new view about the relation of um, free will to cause and effect, or it's a new view of the power of reason. These are fundamental ideas that it takes a lot of thinking to get what the idea is, what the evidence and arguments are in support of the idea. And it's those, the meaning of the idea, the evidence and arguments for the idea that you need to understand to be able to apply it. And because they're new, and to go to the point that I made at the end of pigeonholing, the tendency is to think of it as, well, it's like this other view. So for instance, I've met um, many, people interested in Ayn Rand's ideas coming from a religious background. And they take the new ideas that they're finding in Ayn Rand, but they take them in a whole religious framework. So I was told thou shall be altruistic, thou shall help the poor now. And now it's thou shall be selfish. And it's just another command that this is what I'm supposed to do. But what does it mean to be selfish? Why should I be selfish? Um, what does it look like to build a life around this as a, as a very different fundamental goal to pursue? Those questions aren't really figured out. Um, and so it's, what's happening is you're just adopting what seems like a new idea, but in the old framework, which makes it impossible to apply. And in terms of advice about thinking of the application of Ayn Rand's ideas and her philosophy, um, you have to read the novels. So I, I think, Aaron, this is your experience too. You meet a lot of young people now who've watched some webinars like this, some other stuff on YouTube, listened to some lectures, maybe even read a few nonfiction essays, but have not read The Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged or Anthem or We the Living. And I don't think you can understand Ayn Rand's philosophy and particularly her moral philosophy unless you really think about the novel, I mean, you have to read them, read the novels and really think about the characters and their whole attitude and approach towards life. And even there, it, it requires real thinking and separating out what are the concretes. So if you read The Fountainhead, you'll meet the, the hero, Howard Rourke. If you read Atlas Shrugged, you'll meet people like Dagny Tang or Hank Reardon. They're very different as characters, as individuals, yet they have very similarities in their approach to life and to, to figure out, so what are the principles 
that are guiding them and that I can adopt in my own life? And what are the concretes of their life that don't um, directly transpose to my life? So Howard Rourke, for instance, loves architecture, but there's no kind of perspective and objectives that everybody has to love architecture, but he's also independent. And there is a perspective in objectivism, and this will be the webinar next week, that you should be independent. But that's a principle that you have to learn to apply to your concrete life. And I think the novels, forgetting Ayn Rand's new worldview and new perspective, the novels are indispensable for that. Okay, so let's ask another one. Um, <clears throat> another one from, well, actually, let's go to the question from William, uh, switching gears to God and religion. Uh, he asks, what about natural theology, which purports to prove the existence of an unmoved mover or God or something like that? Um, you talked about this a little, I think, in your last webinar. Um, <clears throat> yeah. You, do you want to say something? I mean, uh, I sure. I mean, so uh, you, you had made the point that, uh, in effect, moving from uh, religion to philosophy is an upgrade. Uh, it's you kind of graduate, in, a, in effect, to a philosophy, to a rational worldview. Uh, and that that involves rejecting, you know, the supernatural. Uh, and the note about natural theology is the idea that um, it's the idea that you can, at the attempt to prove uh, fundamental tenets of religion, such as the existence of God, by the use of reason alone, without appeal to scripture or revelation or anything. And so that was, uh, I mean, think Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and so what they tried to do, in effect, was to uh, pre present logical arguments to arrive at the notion, in many cases, of uh, um, a cause of the universe, um, in many cases. Uh, but for, for Rand's view, two things. One, she doesn't think that the arguments work. Uh, so that's a problem. So if the, if the idea is you can't appeal to faith or scripture, and you're going by reason alone, the arguments actually don't work. Um, but the other thing is that many of the arguments presuppose that the universe requires an explanation, right. that, that you can't explain the things in nature on its own terms, that you have to reach out uh, outside nature, in other words, outside the world of identity and cause and effect, uh, to a realm or a being that doesn't uh, need to adhere to any of those. Um, and at best, what they could do is there was some cause but they don't really get you to religion. Um, and she, yeah, so. And, and there I would differentiate Aquinas and Aristotle in that regard. So Aquinas is clearly trying to um, find some kind of way to make a more natural reason-based approach compatible with Christianity and its, its worship and embrace of faith and the supernatural. So that you don't need evidence, and there's things beyond identity, beyond causality, there's things beyond existence, whatever that means. And I, I think all these are empty notions, beyond existence, beyond identity, beyond causality, they don't mean anything. And if you really take natural theology seriously, in the natural part, what you're just doing is finding a natural cause in the natural world. It's not an object of worship, of uh, that you have to, you owe it obedience and so on. it would if aristotle's looking for the cause of motion it's now i don't think he needs a cause so i think it's it's wrong to think but if that's what he's doing okay he's found a cause of motion it's part of the natural world it's like he's found a black hole 
And it's like, we don't have a whole religion built around worshiping black holes and so on. That, if you really take the natural part seriously, um, it does away with what the traditional notion of religion. Yeah, and I think that the, the religion lives on and requires faith, and it requires the supernatural, and those go together. If you gut religions, if you had a hundred religions, world religions, that said faith is improper, reason is your means of knowledge, there's nothing outside the natural world where you'd just have science, or you'd have different kind of uh, worldviews or ethical perspectives and stuff, but you'd have just nature. So, yeah. yeah. And that's what you see in the Enlightenment period. To say that religion is on the retreat is not to say every Enlightenment figure was an atheist or so. It's to say, qua Enlightenment figure, they're embracing reason and discarding faith, and they're embracing nature and discarding the supernatural. And if you do that, the logical endpoint is religion is finished. Yeah. Okay, so let's ask another question here. Uh, this is more it's about reason. So as Emily says, uh, you said during your talk with regard to reason, if you use it properly, is there a wrong way to use reason? Uh, how do we learn to think and reason properly? Um, this, I think, is a major element of what philosophy teaches. This, the, exactly this issue of what is reason? And here it's using it, reason as a faculty. Um, so you can think of it as a... As, it's analogy, it's not a complete analogy. Uh, it's like an instrument. And you have to learn what is this instrument, like a microscope, what is it capable of? You can misuse a microscope, you can misread what you're seeing under the lens and so on. Um, so it's a faculty that you have to learn how to use in order to reach science. So we're not born knowing um, sorry, to reach knowledge. We're not born knowing science. We're not born knowing the scientific method. And underneath that, we're not born knowing logic. That's what, when you're learning to reason, you're learning how to use your rational faculty, which means, in essence, in objectivism, for Ayn Rand, it's your senses provide you with the material and the data of the natural world which you then have to conceptualize. So you form ideas, concepts, um, like is the supernatural, is that a valid idea, is it a valid concept? I don't think it is. Um, but, but you form ideas, concepts, good or bad, to try to integrate and navigate the world that you perceive. And then you put those together into propositions, arguments, viewpoints, theories. And all of that is what logic studies, how to do that properly or not. It's a major discovery. Um, and the birth of philosophy really happens when there's the understanding that we need a worldview and that there's a way of arriving at a worldview that is proper, which is using your rational faculty properly, investigating, looking for evidence, basing conclusions on evidence. And you can form a worldview improperly, which is in the end using your rational faculty improperly. So religion of inventing, like, I don't know what the cause of this is, so it must be God. That is, you can think of that as reasoning, but it's improper reasoning. You can't, all, you're, all you know is, I don't know what the cause is. If you make up some cause, it doesn't make, now you don't know what the cause is. You still don't know, but you're pretending that you know. 
That's an improper use of reasoning. And it's part of philosophy to teach one what is proper reasoning and why. Yeah, and you can see that all over. I mean, one of the functions, the primary functions of reason is conceptualization. In other words, you, you kind of group, classify, and integrate the things that you see into, into groups. Uh, and false, broken, malformed concepts are all over the place. Everything from uh, you know, microaggressions to uh, Islamophobia, there are all sorts of uh, concepts which there are reasons why you think that these are not the right way to conceptualize things and they, they mess up your thinking. And you, you mentioned the issue of uh, self-interest. And it's like, if you think of selfishness and you group someone like uh, a Steve Jobs with a Bernie Madoff and you figure, well, Steve Jobs is out for himself, right? He's trying to build his company and achieve something. And Bernie Madoff, well, he's out to get fleece people out of their money. Both are going for this, out for their self-interest. And so you put them in the same category. Um, that doesn't help you think about what a selfish person is like. Like if you had an HR file in human resources and you put both of those characters in there, that's not a helpful file. It, it actually messes up the way you think about people. Because what do you think about people in, the file, in that file? Well, you can't answer the question because one is horrible and you know, one is a producer. So it's, yeah. Yeah, and, and the issue of false alternatives that I was talking about uh, kind of throughout the presentation is a sophisticated form of bad conceptualization of sorting the world into these categories and then saying these categories are exhaustive and they're not exhaustive and often the categories themselves aren't very good. Okay, let's see here. Um, so we got a question here. You made the point about uh, heroes, uh, heroic characters in the 20th century. Uh, and you mentioned Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos. Uh, and we've got a question here is, isn't it cherry picking to classify most real quote heroes like Jobs, Bezos and so on as heroes? Is there a difference between being a hero and acting like one? Could we say that Gates did some heroic deeds, but he's not a hero. So what's the, how do you sort out when you classify somebody as heroic? Um, yeah, I think there's, there's a, a few issues there. So one, in presenting them as heroes, I don't want to suggest that they're objectivist and don't know it or something like that. It's rather the element for which they're known. So Bill Gates is known primarily as the creator of Microsoft, and then he becomes a philanthropist and so on, and is now known that. But his claim to fame, so to speak, is the creator of Microsoft. Steve Jobs' claim to fame is taking Apple from near bankruptcy to the largest company in the world at the time of his death. Bezos is creating Amazon from scratch. And it's, it's in that capacity that you're viewing them. This is a heroic accomplishment. And since it's over, it's not just one action or one event. This is over years and decades that they're doing this. And I think it's at the time that they're doing it, it's the essence of who they are. That's what you're regarding as heroic. You might find, as you will for many of the industrialists, there's things that you don't like about them and you think things that you, they do that are wrong um, and that are not even moral. I think of that in, in some of, uh, when I read about these kinds of figures. That's true. I mean, it's not just true of industrialists. It's true of scientists. So, and so when you're thinking of 
actual people as against fictional portrayals. You have to be able to focus in on certain characteristics and know that there's others that might be um, from a moral perspective bad or problematic. Uh, but that doesn't change, I think, that, that in terms of when you're thinking of accomplishment on this grand scale, that you think of the person as heroic, not just the deed or action that he performed, because it's not a single deed or action. Um, but part of the, the reason that you need to read Ayn Rand's fiction is precisely in fiction, you, and sh you can and she does make this kind of distinction. So her heroes like a Howard Rourke in The Fountainhead are heroic through and through um, and deliberately so. Her, her, her purpose in writing fiction was the portrayal of a new ideal, a new moral ideal, a new conception of a moral hero. And so they're essentialized in such a way that you get full heroes. And in actual life, you have to make this kind of separation, that there's real aspects of the person that I regard as heroic, and I regard this in, as embodying the essence of the person's soul. And so I regard him as a hero. That doesn't mean you literally think everything that the person has done is good. And also, I mean, the, one of the things when you, you picked uh, somebody like Jeff Bezos or, or Steve Jobs, uh, one of the things that's really distinctive of Ayn Rand's philosophy, I don't actually know any other philosophers who, um, who think of productiveness uh, as a moral issue. You could admire someone for their productiveness. You could admire a Steve Jobs for what he's created and what he's done. But to regard this as a moral issue, I mean, that wouldn't really compute, I think, for most people. But part of it is that morality for her is about the achievement of life and the idea of, of, of productiveness, uh, of bringing material values into the world, of creating them, uh, and the enormous positive effect that has on human life in sustaining it, making it better, and so on. Uh, that becomes a moral issue, uh, a central one for her. And it's distinctive, I think. Yeah. I got a question from Sally here. Uh, this is when it's about emotions. Um, so I guess this is about what objectivism thinks about the role of emotions. So it's, uh, what about emotions? Don't they alert us to what is important? We can't possibly know what's important without emotions and experience. So like, how does emotion play? You've made a big deal about reason and, and the centrality of that, but what about emotions? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, that's another false alternative you, that you could put up and that I could have put up and that it relates to this. As I said, um, we can only scratch the surface really here, but it's a good question. And, and it's a good question in part because we're presented with this false alternative that you either side with your emotions and that means that your emotions lead and you in some sense follow, or else you side with reason and logic and that means to cut away and cut out the emotional side of life from how you're gonna function and how you're going to behave. And Rand thinks, again, this is a false alternative. You should not be led around by your emotions. So emotions are not in any sense of primary. They don't tell you what's true or false. They don't even tell you what's good or bad. What they tell you, they're derivatives. So they're not primaries, they're secondary or derivative. And they're derivative on the thinking and ideas that you've formed. So the thinking you've done, 
the ideas and values that you form, and they have a real role. She called in, in one of the metaphors she uses that emotions are like printouts, telling you the score. So telling you, given what you've thought and valued, this these things in the world are uh, on your side. They're pro your values. They're pro your goals. Um, so if you feel fear, you think something's out to destroy your values. If you feel joy, it's you think you've achieved a value and so on. But it comes from your past thinking and your past ideas and your past values. And you have to think, are my values, I'm sorry, are my emotions, what are they responding to? And is, does this response make sense? Um, is what it's saying, I should be afraid here? Should I really be afraid? Or is am I misconstruing certain things? People are afraid of public speaking. I think in many cases, it's an irrational fear. They have a way out of blown view of what will happen if you give a bad speech, or even if you can't even remember your words and sort of have to stop halfway through. Audiences are typically very forgiving, very sympathetic. So it's not the end of the world, but people have a kind of portrait of it. And of it, oh, it would be the end of the world if this happens. And so have a fear of public speaking that's way out of proportion to what it brings what it should be. So your emotions aren't automatically correct, right? Even if your thinking is good and you've been a rational person and so on. So you they're valuable in that they help bring to mind your past thinking, your past judgments, your past evaluations. But you live in the present and you have to figure out, yeah, but does this make sense? Is this right? And so, and that's what your mind and reasoning has to do. So Rand's portrait is that you're you should be trying to bring your emotions and your reasoning in harmony, in alignment, in integration, and that it's possible to do that. It's not choose one or the other. Okay. Um, let's move to some sort of, uh, how would you call these more directly practical sort of issues of application of, of objectivism. Uh, so we got a question from Mike. I'm gonna shorten this a bit. Um, you know, uh, just from the perspective of the Institute, you know, we're trying to, like with this webinar, we're trying to uh, talk about, present some of Ayn Rand's ideas to the world uh, and talk about some of its, the value it brings. And he asks, are there any problems in our culture that objectivism could help to solve? And I think he's talking about some specific kind of things like uh, he says, he mentions a list of things. So I think it's helpful to think about the, the whole list. Obesity, divorce, identity politics, mental health, poor education, etc. So when you think of that list, I mean, it's... Um... Um, I think it... So a philosophy as a worldview shapes everything um, and should shape everything. So it will color your approach to almost every issue. Um, so take obesity, for example. A philosophy does not dictate what are the causes of obesity, what are the, the um, remedies if there's, um, that you have a cause that's making you gain weight and so on and you don't want and it's unhealthy. And so, but it does shape how you think about these issues. So one thing it teaches you is that causality is complex um, and the whole development of the scientific method is 
in part because it's difficult to isolate cause and effect. And in the case of obesity, as in many other areas, we are prone to oversimplification. So to think, okay, if the cause of some people being overweight is just, they don't take responsibility for their lives. They don't have real goals and values. They don't value themselves enough. So they overeat and they don't care and so on. There may be people like that. And, it, and the solution to that is that they learn um, to have more, uh, to value themselves more and to value themselves mind and body more and to take that seriously. But there are other causes, I think, of what science is discovering of, that can be genetic predispositions. Uh, I know people on drugs can lose a lot of weight or gain a lot of weight as a result of the drug and so on. So to think there's just one cause of obesity and it's all people who are kind of couch potatoes and couldn't bother to do anything so is, uh, I think, almost for sure an oversimplification. And part of what a philosophy teaches you, to, it's to really respect cause and effect, to think about it, to understand why it's complicated and not to, um, just reach for easy solutions that you don't really have evidence for, that this is the cause of every case of obesity and so on. Um, so to, that's one that's sort of way more at the periphery, something like identity politics or proper versus improper education. I think philosophy has an enormous amount to say because identity politics is about, if you take the identity seriously, let's leave aside the politics, just take the what makes a person that person is it nature nurture is it choice is it choice in an environment and so on that is a is a central philosophical question that i think a philosophy and certainly objectivism has a tremendous amount to say of how to think about your identity and education is about training a rational faculty to learn how to think and navigate the world. So learn how to think and act successfully in the world. And philosophy, as going back to a previous question, has a tremendous amount to say about what proper reasoning is, what proper thinking is, what proper action is, like what are the fundamental goals you should be working for. Um, Aaron brought up a little bit before the issue of productivity that Ayn Rand really stresses, this is a major issue in life it's a major virtue, it's a major value that you should be on the quest to produce values, to create values. Um, that an education should be stressing that if that really is part of the essence of a human life, an educational system would be designed to really teach that. So it, there's a tremendous amount on those issues, for instance, that philosophy uh, contributes to. Okay, so, so we're down to the the two minute warning here. Okay. Um, let me just ask a question. Uh, so, I mean, you've been talking about objectivism and you know some of what it is and emphasizing some of the value, but stepping back from the whole thing, I mean, if somebody wants to know, I'm not in a position where I'm choosing philosophies, like I'm not shopping for shoes and this is one of them and these look shiny, but it's, why do you need to concern yourself with this at all? Like the whole, I mean, I mean Rand says a lot about this, but she thinks you need one. You need to go shopping, so to speak, or you need to think about the ideas. So can you say something briefly about that? I'll just say, uh, so I presented a bunch of false alternatives, 
But these are alternatives we're actually faced with and people tell us we have to choose. So maybe it's not a whole set. It's not a philosophy as all these things are interconnected, though they actually are. But for a particular one, so someone brought up reason and emotion. This, we're told this, that this is your choice in life. And, and if you get to the stage where it's, yeah, but both of these seem problematic. I don't want to go be led by my emotions, but I also don't want to cut them off. And what, how should I function? That's a philosophical question. And it makes real difference in a person's life and a spiritual material, or should you orient yourself to the supernatural or not? Like, these are real questions that people face. And um, you take a stand on them where you like it or not. And you might as well take a stand that you're convinced of is true. Yeah. Um, so do you have any recommendations or the next webinar? Uh, yeah. So the next webinar, I'll put that up in a moment. And recommendations. So up on Ayn Rand campus. So if you go to aynrand.org in the campus section of the website, Ayn Rand has a little introduction to objectivism that's about 10 minutes long, I think. And it gives you a little bit the structure as a philosophical system, what objectivism is about. There's also an hour-long lecture by Dr. Peacock on objectivism that, that fleshes out a little more of what Ayn Rand sketches in 10 minutes. And if you want to read something um, and getting at her worldview, I mean, the best things are The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. They're long. If you want just an essay, there's an essay, Faith and Force, um, the destroyers of the modern world, that gives a, in terms of a worldview, what she thinks is wrong with existing worldviews and what a better alternative is. So those are three things that people could check out. And then, yeah, let me just put up uh, the webinar again. So next week, um, it's uh, Dr. Harry Binswanger, and he will be talking about independence and uh, what a proper conception of what it means to be independent is from the perspective of Ayn Rand's ideas. Okay, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aaron, for helping uh, moderate and participating in the discussion, and we hope to see you next week. Okay, thanks, Dr. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.